You're with a friend in your personal airplane that you've owned for many years and you trust everything on it. You're current, capable, and ready to shoot an ILS approach that you've flown many times in the past. You're on the final approach course and the needles are centered. All is going perfectly until it isn't. You break out just above minimums and what you see isn't the airport environment. It's a scary scenario that happened to a pilot. What did he see? We'll find out on this episode of ILAFT. I learned about flying from that. Hello everyone, I'm Rob Ryder, and welcome to episode 75 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, brought to you by Avemco Insurance. My guest today is Al Hewitt, an Army veteran who flew fixed-wing aircraft in Vietnam and is a flight instructor. He and a friend, also a high-time pilot, were making a short flight out for breakfast and needed to shoot an ILS into the destination airport. All was looking good for the approach until he broke out of the clouds and didn't see what he expected. Al had a very close call, and he'll tell us all about it right after this message from Avemco. Avemco is the only aircraft insurance company that lets you call them directly. In fact, they want you to call them. They love talking about airplanes, and if you've got a squawk with your insurance company, even if it's with Avemco, they want to hear about it. It's that direct, one-on-one, -on -one personal contact that sets Avemco apart. Visit avemco.com flying, or call them today at 800-338-8705. Say you're an iLaft listener, and you'll save 5% on your annual premium. Now, I learned about flying from that. My guest today on I Laughed is Al Hewitt, a guy who, flying a Cessna 180, found himself nigh unto a crash had he not looked up in time. And that's, that's a scary thing. Al Hewitt, thank you for joining us on I Laughed today. You're quite welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you. Your a aviation life... Uh, went way before the Cessna 180. You want to tell me a little bit about what got you started in aviation and where you went? Because I know there's a segment in there in Vietnam where you were flying a very interesting airplane, a very rare airplane at that. But tell me a little bit about what got you into flying. Well, I uh, graduated from high school and got into an apprenticeship program in the mid-60s, in 1964. And um, Started flying in about 1966. The apprenticeship program was uh, a deferment from the military, so it was like going to college. I was exempt from the draft for a few few years. What year was that? Well, I started the apprenticeship in '64, graduated in '68, so okay. I became eligible for the draft in 1968. But in 1966, I started taking flying lessons down at the local airport, primarily uh, Cessnas. I soloed in a Cessna 150. Got a commercial instrument rating in a 172, and then graduated to a Cessna 140, and I flew those for, I don't know, another 150 hours or so. So by the time um, the draft caught up with me in 1968, I had a commercial instrument and 250 hours of flying. And that pretty much got me into the military at that point. Uh, the Army came after me. 
on the draft or with the draft, and I qualified for their fixed wing program, got through basic training, got through pre-flight, and um, ultimately ended up uh, in the Army fixed wing program. I assume the recruiter was very pleased to see somebody with your uh, flying credentials approaching. Uh... Yeah, as, as we say, there were uh, there were walk-ons like I was, and there were guys that were uh, coming through the pipeline of OCS, uh, the, the service academies, uh, that type of a thing. And those guys didn't know how to fly, but uh, the walk-ons like myself, which we come were a little bit above a junkyard dog compared to the <laughs> prima donnas that some of the other people were, uh, knew how to fly. <laughs> and so it was showed up quite vividly in flight school that uh, the the guys that had previous fixed wing time, um, you know, were, were the ones that were excelling and soloed the first and got the best grades, that sort of thing. So at any rate... Uh, on to flight school. I did pretty good. I was top guy in the class and I got to choose whatever airplane was available to fly. And I chose the U-8. That was the, the choice that I had. And it went on to uh, go to training in that. The training consisted of, I don't know, it was about a 12-week program to fly this old, uh, well, they were geared like homing engines on that airplane. Um, wow. 340 horse on each side with 48 inches of manifold pressure. So it was quite a handful, quite a slug, if you will, on one engine. I mean, it wouldn't climb at all on one engine. If you did the gear up and the flaps up, you couldn't get that thing to climb at all on one engine. So it was a real sled. The U-8, for those who may not be aware of it, is was Beach's first attempt at a light twin, right? It, it actually preceded the Baron. It was, I think, the name that actually they called it was a twin bonanza. It was a twin bonanza, and there was a travel air in there sometime also, and I'm not sure what, what vintage they were. What did you do in the U-8? What kind of missions did you fly? Well, the mission was called ARDF. That stood for Airborne Range Direction Finding. And our mission was, uh, this was a flying antenna airplane. It had a giant de- generator in it with dipole antennas on each wingtip, and we could actually fix and locate transmitters on the ground. Um, the Ho Chi Minh Trail was full of ordnance and ammunitions as the uh, North Vietnamese were running it down to the south aboard this, or along this 800-mile-long, 150-mile-wide corridor called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I think every branch of the service had some sort of operation going over or on the ground at that time, trying to stop the the flow of, uh, of goods going south. And our mission was to locate transmitters. Um, the North Vietnamese would link upstream, upslink and downlink, upstream and downstream with each other with uh, Morse code transmitters. And our job was to be on board overhead when these transmitters came up and actually locate the transmitter on the ground via direction finding and triangulation, if you will. Once we did that, located a transmitter on the ground, we would download that information. And quite often, either there was an artillery um, brought in or there was a fast mover coming by that would unload something on top of it, or maybe the infantry would go in there. But we located the transmitter site on the ground. We got pretty good at it. We could get real close to where they actually were and um, did that for about a 1,000 hours while I was in country. Wow. Well, thank you for your service. (laughs) What... What happened after after Vietnam? Did you continue to fly? Did you get into commercial aviation, or or what happened then? Well, I rotated out of Vietnam in 1971, and I got signed to Fort Lewis. They made an instructor pilot out of me, and I flew the general around, taught guys how to fly U-8s, 
And then I got orders to go to helicopter school and go back to Vietnam. And mm-hmm. that was something I didn't want to do. So I opted to get out of the service. And that was 1973, I guess it was. Right near the end. There weren't any jobs, flying jobs, that did anything I was interested in available to me at that time. And so um, I went uh, back to school and finished my engineering degree. And I'm an electrical engineer. And then I um, went to work for Corporate America. And um, <laughs> then the airlines opened up and there was opportunities. I did had a few interviews with them and got accepted to go to work for an airline in, out of Chicago. But it would have meant uh, moving to Chicago, moving my family. And the pay was horribly, horrible at the time. So I said, you know, I got a good job. It's paying well. And i got a place here in Seattle, a family. So I stayed. Stayed what I was doing with corporate America. And as I worked for corporate America, I went up through the ranks, and pretty soon I had a territory of responsibility and a need for transportation. So I started flying myself to the different locations around the Northwest here. Did you rent a plane at first? I did. I rented, a, rented Mooney's, M21s, M231s. Uh, turbocharged Mooney was the airplane of choice. And I flew those for, I guess, about five years. Wow. And then the Cessna 180 that I have now became available. It was I mean, I bought that airplane, and I've made numerous modifications and changes to it, and I've owned it now for, I don't know, 38 years or thereabouts. Great airplane. Um, in 1985, I got my instructor's ratings, CFI and CFII. I had an ATP rating at that in 1972, and in uh, 1995, I got an AMP license. That's become very helpful working on my airplanes, allowed me to do some things on it that uh, I wouldn't otherwise have done. Al, how many hours do you have in your logbook now, and what kind of flying do you do most of the time? Today, I have about 8,000 hours of flying. Most of the time, my, my flying is uh, for personal use, recreation worlds. I do a little bit of flight instruction. I think I flew about 70 hours of flight instruction last year with instrument students, flight reviews, and kind of the types of flying that I've been doing. Now, let's go to your Cessna 180 I left incident. Tell me when it was. Tell me what happened, because this was not going to be a major flight, but it did uh, include an approach that actually could have turned out very badly. When did this take place? Well, I think the year was 2001, and I had just recently installed a new GPS panel mount uh, unit in my airplane, IFR certified and, you know, it was just a, a local flight to an airport to uh, have the obligatory $200 pancake, as we call it. <laughs> of course. The airport that we were going to go to has a real nice restaurant, and it's about 20-minute flight from my base airport. And so uh, myself and a, a good friend of mine hopped in the, the 180, and we went out for a little ride. The objective was to get into the airport, and so he dialed up the weather on ASOS, and Sure enough, it's IFR. It's 300 overcast and about five miles visibility. But you've got a fully equipped airplane that's GPS if you wanted to use that, or you were, but you were proficient, as I think uh, I read, that you were proficient, current, and ready to go. You could have flown it by the needles without the GPS. Yeah. The GPS was just there as a backup. The primary flight information was going to be via the HSI radios that had been in the airplane for years that worked well. And I had flown this approach many times, so I wasn't new to it, if you will. So we got a pop-up for the uh, approach, talked to the approach controller and uh, told him what we wanted to do, and he gave us a clearance to the airport. And I don't know, about eight miles or nine miles north 
uh, on base leg, if you will, for this approach. The approach is to the south of this airport. I had the radios all dialed in, tuned and identified, read the approach played out and reviewed the approach, looked at the missed approach procedures. I've just done most of the things, everything that you can normally do on a typical ILS approach. And what airport was it? The airport was Bremerton National, PWT. It's uh, west of Seattle, Tacoma Airport, and north and west of my airport. My airport is Puyallup in uh, South Carolina, in Pierce County. Nice that it has an ILS and a good restaurant. Yeah, it had both of us. It's an ex-Navy airfield left over from World War II. It's been turned over to the uh, good citizens of Bremerton. Sounds to me, Al, like you have everything properly set up for the ILS 2-0 at Bremerton. What altitude were you flying at at that point? I was at 3,500 feet. Controller, after the pop-up, had given me uh, headings and altitude assignments and pushed me up to 3,500 feet. We were right at the base of the clouds at that point. And um, anyway, someplace out on base leg, I had all the radios dialed in, and uh, the localizer came alive on the HSI. The identifier was good. I briefed the approach with uh, my, my cohort in the airplane. And at that moment, the glide slope appeared from the top of the case on my instrument and centered on the middle of it. And um, indicating I was right at the glide slope altitude uh, at that position of my flight. You must have felt good about it at that point then, if everything was centered up. It looked normal to me, except I had a, I think it was a fly right indication on the localizer. But the heading that the controller had given me took me on to the final approach course. I turned the airplane and now had both the localizer centered and the glide slope centered and started the descent. Passed the final approach fix, uh, noted the distance on the GPS, was consistent with uh, the markings on the approach plate. Uh, I think there was a fan marker at that point, and I know there was an ADF, so the course reversal on the ADF needle was apparent. So all indications were I was at the final approach fix, started the clock, began the descent, stayed on the glide slope, needle on the glide slope. If it moved at all, it didn't move very much, but uh, any correction to... The glide slope with pitch and power uh, was accomplished to hold the glide slope in the middle, and I chased the localizer back and forth as you typically do on an ILS approach. So you're trying to pick up a 90-knot ground speed all the way through this, right? Stabilize. Someplace in that vicinity, 90 knots is the target with this airplane, yeah, but 14 inches of manifold pressure, and I leave the flaps up, we're just coming downhill at, you know, 110 indicator, 90 knots on the ground, I guess it was. So somewhere around... I guess uh, about 800 feet on the altimeter. The decision height was 640 feet, so I'm getting pretty close to minimums at 800 uh, feet on the altimeter. Glide slope is centered, the localizer is centered. I start to see a little bit of movement out the window of my airplane, and I glance out, and yep, there's the ground down there. I try to stay on the gauges until I got the airport in sight with complete visibility of the approach lights or the runway. Um, and the airport was reporting 300 over. Thread it over, right. And we're about 500 AGL at this time. So wow, I'm, okay. I'm Very still a couple close. hundred feet above the decision height, maybe 150 feet. This this airport, by the way, is kind of in a bowl with higher terrain to the north of it, higher terrain to the west of it. Um, the higher terrain to the north is the approach, plate, the pl- approach path that you're coming in from. And as I... Um, glanced up in front of the airplane now that I'm partially visual, all I can see is trees. 
I mean, I'm not seeing the ground. I'm not seeing the approach lights. I'm just seeing trees. They're big trees, and they're in front of me and above Uh-oh. me and all around me. We haven't hit him, but I immediately arrested the descent, pushed the power lever in, and started back uphill, declared a missed approach. And interestingly, the, the localizer stayed centered, but so did the glide slope. Even though the airplane is now climbing, I'm well above the glide slope. The glide slope indicator stays centered in the case. That was your first indication that the glide slope wasn't right. First indication that I could uh, resonate with, yes. And you saw trees ahead. You were seconds away from impacting the trees. Yes, I was, yeah. So in the, the glide slope stayed centered in the case until I changed the frequency from uh, the localizer frequency to you know, a different frequency in the nav portion of the radio. And as soon as that happened, the localizer disappeared. So... Obviously, I had flown the approach within an operative glide slope and didn't realize it because the glide slope was centered and there's no flag. It's interesting that that HSI's got several flags on it to tell you what's functioning and what's not functioning. One of the flags is the heading flag, and if the heading of the the HSI doesn't agree with the flux valve out on the wingtip, then that flag appears as a heading. The other flag is a nav flag, and the nav flag is tied to the course needle. And if you're not receiving good VOR, good ILS, the nav flag appears. So both of those flags were disappearing or missing from the face of the instrument. The third flag of sorts is the glide slope flag. And if you look at a standard CDI that has both glide slope and um, localizer needle on it, it's got two flags. One is for the localizer, one's for the glide slope. But in the HSIs, the mere appearance of the glide slope is the flag telling you that it's, in fact, working. There's two circuits that drive a glide slope uh, in any instrument, be it a, CS, a CDI or, or a HSI. One circuit is to remove the flag. The other circuit is to drum, drive the up and down needle, positive and negative. In my case, the flag appeared centering the needle, but the up and down needle wasn't following the, the signal. It turned out upon returning to the airport and taking the airplane into maintenance, they discovered that one of the wires had pulled out of the back of the nav radio, which enabled the glide slope to work. So the flag worked, but the up and down indication did not work because of this wire on the back of the radio. And that happened apparently when the GPS had been installed. Al, there was no way then that you could have ever determined that that wire was gone and that the glide slope was inoperative unless you were actually flying an approach. In this case, down to minimums that could have led to your death. Tell me what happened after you called the mist. Well, the published mist approach was straight ahead, climb to 4,000 feet and uh, go out here to an intersection and hold. And as soon as I put the lever forward, and we got above 3,500 feet. I was back visual, and I canceled IFR and headed back to our airport, which was VFR, and we were able to land. So it was uneventful after that. Uneventful? I'm glad it was, because what happened out there was certainly eventful. I would have been shaken in my boots. Al, I'd like to take a break, and when we come back, we'll discuss what you learned about flying from that. The folks at Avemco Insurance are passionate about pilot safety. That's why they sponsor the FAA's Fast Team Wings program, publish 
dozens of articles on safety techniques and human factors by noted CFIs, and even support I learned about flying from that. Visit avemco.com slash flying or talk to them at 800-338-8705. Tell them you and I learned about flying from that listener and they'll even save you an additional 5% off your premium. Now, back to iLab. We're back with Al Hewitt, who in the Vietnam War survived that flying a Beechcraft twin bonanza, a U-8, and even in the midst of combat, perhaps the most dangerous mission he ever flew was that ILS when he saw trees instead of the runway when he was approaching minimums. Al, that centered needle on the glide slope really led you into a false sense of security, didn't it? You think back about it and you think, you know, well, the glide slope was moving and I was following it and I was chasing the needle and keeping me in the center and I was moving the controls and the powers necessary to keep the, to satisfy the requirements of the instrument. And, you know, I was doing that and the needle was moving and apparently it wasn't moving very much. And if it was moving at all, it was, I don't know, electronic noise or something that was causing it to move. But it was certainly uh, seducing uh, of me from that standpoint. The workload during an ILS is considered by some to be the heaviest workload you can get involved with, especially if you're a single pilot, but you weren't alone in the airplane, were you? You know, I had, I had a very experienced guy with me in the right seat at that time, a very high-time uh, pilot who also had a 180 at that time or 185, whatever it was. And, you know, he had no comment at all, at the, at all about the approach. He said it looked flawless to him, and uh, the needles were centered, and he had no indication that uh, it was... Anything was a ray, and that was one of the reasons that, you know, sometimes I think you do better when you're solo because you don't have somebody else with you that uh, can confirm what you're seeing or ne necessarily uh, agree with what you're, what you're seeing. When you discovered that the, the wire had come loose, did, did you have any discussion with the guy who did the installation on that, or was it just one of those things that there was no way of foreseeing it, and you uh, still shook hands and trusted the guy, or did you, uh, did you have some discussion with him that uh, may have been a little negative? Well, the, the avionics shop said they found the problem, and um, the installation of the GPS would not have warranted any other testing, but since... Any instance happened anytime anybody's under the instrument panel of my airplane, and that's to include the pedostatic transponder test, I insist that they get the box out and run the gauges or run the instruments through the test and make sure the glide slope and localizers and VORs are working properly before I fly the airplane again. And the airplane does not have a second glide slope. I guess if I had to do over again, that'd probably be a consideration, um, but I don't have a second glide slope in the airplane. Do you fly ILS approaches with the GPS, or do you still cons consider that as a secondary instrument in ILS approaches? I fly the ILS approaches without the GPS. Again, the, the extent of GPS approaches is, is, is just that, GPS approaches. And even though there may be a VOR approach or a ILS approach, um, my standard procedure is to set the GPS to the airport so I know exactly how far I am from the airport. You are definitely not a child of the magenta line like so many pilots are. You're kind of a back-to-the-basics kind of pilot, aren't you? So I like GPSs, make no mistake. I mean, I have one in my airplane. I would not want to fly without it. 
But I will say this, I miss ADFs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think autopilots are, are great. I think they can be a crutch. Um, the airplanes that I flew in the military did not have autopilots. And so, uh, you know, you either hand flew it, could hand flew it and talk on the radio and crank the gear down and fly it in one engine or they wouldn't let you fly it. It was as simple as that. You had to be proficient in it. So that's my story. What else did you learn about flying from that? Always have a backup. Any instrument approach can and will end up as a, uh, uh, any ILS approach can and will end up as a localizer approach if a glide fails. So you want to be prepared for that by hacking the time at the final approach fix and noting the minimums that are appropriate for the, uh, the localizer-only approach. I think those are the two main ones right there. Just just don't rely totally on what you see and you know, what your instruments are because you may have a, a malfunction or something that's not working right for you. Very good lessons for all of us, Al, and make sure everything's tested. And I think the one that may resonate with me most fully is that we be prepared to go to the less precision approach should we recognize a failure on a precision approach. Very important. Thanks so much, Al Hewitt, for being on iLaft. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate being here. One note before we close. On a normal ILS approach, the glide slope needle or indication will show the aircraft below the glide path. I asked Al about this for some clarification after we finished our recording, and he told me that he was turned in closer to the final approach course, so the centered needle didn't look out of place. Thank you, Al. I want to thank all of you again for listening to this episode. I'm so encouraged by comments I hear from people who have learned lessons from my guests. Keep listening. Subscribe if you haven't done so yet, so you'll get notifications whenever we drop a new episode. We try to do it every couple of weeks. Do you have an I Laughed story you'd like to tell? I'd like to hear it. Send me an email with a synopsis of your story. We'll consider it for an episode. My address is rob at flying.media. Rob at flying.media. The I Laugh theme and commercial instrumental music for the podcast was written and performed by Rob Podorf. Julie Boatman is editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine, and Lisa DeFries is the executive producer of iLaft. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927, I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That.